Well, good morning, Crossing. It is good to be able to jump back into the book of 1 Peter with you all this morning. Uh, this is a book that we started back at the beginning of the year. We've been on a, on a break here over the Easter season, but uh, we are diving back into this book together, even though we are at a distance this morning. And so hopefully you have your coffee with you, you're settled in, in your pajamas, relaxed and ready to enjoy God's Word uh, together this morning. And I would just invite you, regardless of what's going on in, in your location this morning, whether that's uh, a quiet room in your house, it's just you and your computer and a good cup of coffee where you can really focus in, or whether you're a family with kids and trying to settle people in and it's just kind of chaotic and hard to focus. My invitation is for, for all of you to, to dive into this text with me. We are here to, to look into God's Word, to hear from our Lord and what He has told us through the writing of Peter. And so I'm excited for this passage, so I just want us to be able to meditate on this together, and not just today in this brief hour, but even this week, because I believe that there are truths in this text that are relevant for us every day, and especially in the season as we walk about our lives each and every day. Uh, and so I'm excited to be able to get into this, so let me pray for us, because I need uh, an extra level of help with this passage and the difficulties that it entails, but uh, we depend on Christ this morning, and so let me pray, and we will dive in. Father, we come to your word this morning. We recognize just how gracious you have been to us in delivering this word and message to us so that we can know you, we can understand you, and that we can, through it, know how we can enter into a relationship with you. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus that is declared over and over through your word. And so I pray that we would be a people this morning that submit our lives to the truth of your word even when it is challenging to understand and challenging to grasp. So let your truth go forth this morning. Use my words as merely an instrument of you and your spirit to be able to press into our hearts and into our lives that which we need that will challenge us, will shape us, will give us what we need to stand firm in difficult days. So we love you, Father. We ask that our hearts would be drawn to know you. Our passions would be stirred to love you. And that most of all, you would be exalted uh, in our eyes today. And we ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. In the past couple years, uh, I have been trying to find time to read some more classical literature. And uh, in that process, I decided to read The Count of Monte Cristo. It's a long book, but I took the time and slowly plowed through it. Uh, but I, I quickly became captivated with the story. And if you aren't familiar with the basic plot line, the, uh, the, the central character is this man, Edmund Dantes. He's a sailor. He is a faithful employee. He's a young man who is, who is working hard and diligently to find financial stability so that he can marry his beautiful fiance. And in that, Edmund is betrayed by primarily four men, each of whom have their own reasons for disliking him. And Edmund is eventually wrongfully charged with being a loyalist to Napoleon Bonaparte during the time when he was exiled uh, to the island of Elba. And Edmund is quietly shipped off to this deep, dark prison island, the Chateau d'If. And there, he's sent to really just disappear. He, he does not have a trial. He doesn't even himself know why he is actually imprisoned. But yet, he ends up spending the next, I believe, 13 years in this terrible, awful place. And in the course of events, he, he somehow meets this old man who's also been in this prison for a long time. This wise old man then teaches Edmund all these, this knowledge of how to read. He, he imparts with, to him all these different skills of, of fighting. And then he also gives Edmund information on this long-lost hidden treasure. After some time, Edmund eventually is able to escape this prison. He goes out and he finds this treasure and then armed with knowledge, skills, and all of this newly acclaimed wealth, he embarks on a lifelong pursuit of revenge or justice, depending on whose perspective you may be looking at it from, against these four individuals who caused him to be thrown into this prison. And it's a captivating story. And one of the things that the book does is that it confronts the reader with this tension between revenge and justice 
and, our, and, and ultimately calls to, to, for us to recognize our, our longing as humans for vindication. And as you read each of these enemies, as you're waiting for them to get what's coming to them, you also see Dantes as he is fulfilling his vendetta against them, a sense in which he struggles to find true satisfaction and a true sense of justice and, and wrestling with, with, with what is vindication look like. And I believe that, that stories like this point to us, this, this reality and this tension that we all feel, this inherent desire that we have for justice, for things to be made right. And when we experience injustice or we experience the slander of our own character, we long for vindication. And here in Peter's letter, I believe that he offers us hope in that struggle that we feel. And so as we begin to dig into this specific passage, we have to hold it again in its proper context. As we've been away from the book for a little bit, we need to recognize where this falls. Remember that Peter's central challenge to his audience is to endure the suffering they are experiencing from their unwelcoming society around them. And let's remember that Peter, in his letter, is, is not necessarily speaking of all forms of, of suffering, such as mere sickness or just economic hardship, but rather, specifically, he is referring to that direct suffering that is a result of being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus. And so Peter is encouraging them on how to live amidst the rising hostility around them. In chapter 2, Peter addresses very specific relationships that we looked at in the weeks past. He, he addresses the relationship of, of Christians to the government. What a, what a pertinent topic for us in this season. And then he addresses servants and their masters and then even husbands and wives and their relationship and how these same principles should work out. And then in verses 8 to 12, just before our passage this morning, Peter steps back and he gives this real general kind of call for everyone, this overarching challenge, and he encourages them to embody these characteristics and these virtues of unity, sympathy, love, tenderness, and forbearance. And then our passage here in verses 13 to 22 will continue to expand on these themes and ultimately it will show us this, that because God's ultimate vindication has been declared over all evil, we can graciously respond to unjust treatment. And so much of this section parallels what we already have seen in chapter, chapter 2 and ultimately will be repeated even in chapter 4. And so basically, Peter is saying the same thing over and over again, which is probably a good indication to us that we should pay attention. We need to listen to what he has to say. And so we're going to track through this in just four different points that I believe Peter lays out for us. So our first point is found in verses 13 and 14, where Peter calls us that amidst facing this suffering, we need to first adjust our expectations. We have to adjust our expectations. Verse 13 introduces to us this rhetorical question. Peter's been encouraging and calling for us to respond to mistreatment with, uh, and, and injustice to the harshness around us, to unfairness. We're to respond with patience, honor, and respect. So he's basically saying, regardless of how you are treated, do what is right. But he then asks us a question and he says, who is going to harm you if you do what is good? If you live an upright life of love, of tenderness, of respect, who is going to want to hurt you? And the natural answer is, well, no one, right? We would expect to say no one. Nobody would want to harm someone who hasn't done anything wrong. That is our reasonable expectation that I think Peter is, is addressing here. We think that if we do what is right, we won't suffer. But Peter tells us to recognize the reality of our situation. And he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, the reality is that even if you acted and responded perfectly in every situation, 
you might still face those out there who criticize, slander, insult, and harm you. And how do we know this? Well, first of all, we look at Jesus. How did that work out for him, right? In a fallen world where all of our hearts are marred by sin, we will all find ways to twist, to question, and to judge others. And Christians are no exception to this. And actually, we would do well to remember that Jesus warned us that this would happen. And Peter writes these words to encourage us not to be disillusioned when it comes. Even though doing right should normally assuage ill treatment of us from others, we may still suffer. That kind of stinks, doesn't it? But Peter encourages us and he says, he says, take heart because there is a promise amidst the suffering you may face. And he says, you will be blessed. And I believe Peter is referencing Jesus' statement that he gave in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, where he said, Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. So if we have right expectations, it helps us to prepare to endure. Just think of this if you're going to go on a hike. If you're going to go out and go on a hike, you, you probably want to know what kind of hike you're going to go on, right? Like if you're just going to walk down and you know, park down at one of the local natural areas and just go on a nice little stroll around a flat path, you know, don't need a lot of preparation. You can go and do kind of do that at any time. But if you're going to go hike Horse Tooth Rock, or better yet, if you're going to take a climb and, and climb Long's Peak, you want to know what, what kind of hike you're getting into, what to expect, because that's going to change the way that you prepare. It's going to change your mindset going into that. How difficult it's going to be, how much you're going to have to dig down and really, really keep going. And if somebody invites you for a hike and you expect to go to a natural area, but you start hiking Long's, you may start to get discouraged pretty quickly. And similarly for us, sometimes we expect as Christians, if, if, if we're doing what's right, who, who, who's going who's gonna to harm us? Who's going to hurt us? And Jesus says, hey, have, have realistic expectations. If you follow me, you may still face opposition. It's going to be difficult. So he asks us to adjust our expectations. Peter then Secondly, tells us to respond rightly to mistreatment. To respond rightly to mistreatment in verses 14 to 16. He says, in light of this, this is how you actually should approach it. Be prepared for it and then approach it in this way. He says, don't fear or be troubled. So when we face hostility and all we're seeking to do was just be loving, we may be tempted to step back and say, whoa, 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 that wasn't worth it. That wasn't supposed to happen. But Peter challenges us not to retreat, but to stand our ground. And remember who's writing to us. This is Peter. He has some experience with fear and shrinking back. This is the, the, the disciple who on the night of Jesus' betrayal denied Jesus three times. Which in one sense should give us hope that there is restoration, but this is also coming from a man who has learned from experience telling us, don't be troubled, don't shrink back, don't deny Jesus in the face of opposition. Hold fast, don't let it trouble you and make you emotionally distraught when you face these things. It's okay. And so he says, rather than responding in fear, he says, do this. He says, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And he actually quotes from Isaiah chapter 8, which says, Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, Him shall you honor as holy. Let Him be your fear and let Him be your dread. First off, by quoting Isaiah 8 and attributing it to, to Christ, here in this passage, Peter is clearly equating Jesus with the Lord of hosts of the Old Testament. This is a clear declaration of Christ's deity. It says that we are to set apart Christ as the Lord in our hearts. Peter's basically saying, rather than fearing man, you need to fear God. It says if, if you're going to fear someone, you better be far more concerned 
with what God thinks. So set, set Christ as your Lord. He is the one you're following. He is the one you answer to. He is the one that you're, with which your allegiance lies. And as we do that, then Peter says that there's the second response. He says, as we set Christ as Lord, we are to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in us. So what does it mean to make a defense? Well, you might know that this Greek word here is, is the word apologia. It's the, the word that we ultimately get the, the, the word apologetics from, which is kind of that, that area of, of study which involves making a reasoned argument for your faith. And so is Peter saying, we need to go and study apologetics? Well, in a sense, maybe yes. There is value and a need to answer and to defend what we believe against the skepticism of our day, against those who challenge the truth of God's word. But the central thrust here in this passage is that we are prepared to make a defense not necessarily by showing the self-contradicting, you know, reasoning behind atheism or that such and such a belief is really untenable, but simply by telling people who ask us why we can have such a hope that characterizes, characterizes our lives. That's the primary defense is just a simple answer for why do we live and hope like we do? So implied within this statement is that our lives actually exhibit something, something that, that calls on and warrants an inquisitive response from those non-believers around us. And so namely, that difference that others should see should be in the hope that colors our lives and our behaviors. Think of even this season, the season of fear and, 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 and unknown during this coronavirus outbreak. How are you approaching it as a Christian that is different and distinct from others? How is the hope that you have of a God that is over all things evident in your life, in the conversations you have, in such a way that the people around you say, wow, you're really, you're really calm, you're really confident, you don't seem overwhelmed and worried by all this. How, how can you approach this season? Because it's pretty terrifying. How can you approach it in this way? And then simply, we have an opportunity to, to share why that hope is. And this is what, what Peter is saying. He says, be prepared to do that. Look for opportunities in which you can share the hope of Jesus. Peter then moves on and he puts a qualifier on this statement, on how we are to make this defense. And I think this is so important, we cannot leave this out. He tells us how to set forth this apologetic. He says, make sure that you are gentle and respectful, having a clear conscience. Too often the Christian's response to criticism is actually absent of these traits, right? The reality is that we are quick to defend ourselves, and it oftentimes takes the form of arrogant mudslinging, and we kind of use that just to, to justify it by saying that we're standing for the truth. But our apologetics can easily drift into aggressive attacks, name-calling, flippant mockery, and self-righteous judgment. If you're familiar with the Babylon Bee, it's this uh, Christian satirical website that kind of puts out different headlines of sorts. Uh, it's incredibly hilarious at times, but really makes a point as well. And one of the Babylon Bee articles that, that came out a while ago was this. It said, the headline read, Man led to Christ after Christian in the comments section declares him a total moron. And it goes on to say, in a brief exchange on Twitter last week, user Freethinker451 said in a public conversation that he thought religion was poisoning people's minds. Well, not long after that comment, uh, another user, BaptistBen590, replied, you're a moron, that is all. And shortly after, Freethinker 451 said, wow, I've never thought about it like that. My life has changed forever. And we get the, we get the humor in that. And we realize that, that nobody ever comes to faith by just slandering them, by, by, by slinging names at each other, by speaking in a way that, that is condescending. 
And this is Peter's point. There are times in which clarity and boldness to stand on the truth of God's word is necessary, especially in the face of unrighteous rebellion. Jesus actually had some pretty harsh words to say to people. Ironically, it was oftentimes for the religious elites. But the heart behind Peter's words here is that how we respond matters. Not just what we say, but how we say it. Truth can be declared in a way that completely undercuts what we are seeking to accomplish. As we engage with those around us who are far from God, who may bring mockery or criticism to us, we are called to patiently endure that hostility with the hope that some will be compelled to ask us, why do you approach life like you do? Why don't you just jump into the fray with the rest of us? In those moments, our calling is not specifically to articulate the cosmological argument for the universe or to debunk all the false religions, but our calling in those moments is to, in gentleness and respect, tell people how Jesus has changed our lives. And when we do this with a clear conscience, basically he's saying when we don't act like hypocrites, when we do it from a clear conscience, then those who slander us will be put to shame. Not that they will face some kind of public shame, but that their slander, the things that they said, will be shown to be empty, to be misguided. Have you ever met someone who you just had a, had a, a wrong impression of? You disliked. You made judgments about them. And then after time of getting to know them and actually have a conversation with them, you come to find out that all of your assumptions were untrue. And maybe your perspective of them changed. The way you listened to them changed. And this is what Peter challenges us as Christians. To respond to insult, to criticism with gentleness and with respect for the other person. And maybe it will be shown that everything they originally thought about us and about Jesus was untrue. And maybe this Jesus is actually one worth following. So as we face mistreatment, we commit our lives to Christ, we are ready to declare our hope, and we respond in gentleness, respect, and authenticity. And that is going to be far more effective than launching a Twitter battle. So next time you queue up that perfect response on social media, or you're about to make that cutting remark, remember Peter's words here. Who in that moment are you setting forth as the Lord? Are you placing yourself up as the judge? Are you seeking to defend yourself? Or do you actually believe that Jesus does that for you? Are you just wanting to be right? Or do you actually care about the soul of the person you're confronting? Yes, we must be bold even in the face of hostility. Peter is calling for boldness. But we must do it with gentleness and respect as we entrust ourselves to God. The next point that Peter moves on to is found in verse 17. Our third point where he tells us to correct our thinking. And this is kind of a, a summary statement that he offers this truism here that's a capstone statement that ties up everything that he's just said. And he declares it is better to suffer for doing right if that should be God's will. Maybe it's actually God's will and purpose for you to face difficulty. But he says it's better to suffer for doing right than for doing wrong. And I believe Peter is calling for us to kind of correct our thinking as we, as we meditate and reflect on this statement. And we have to ask, what does he mean by it's better? Why is it better to suffer for good than for doing wrong? And I think he makes this statement because our default tendency, the, the default of our heart, is to say something like, if I'm going to suffer either way, whether I do right or wrong, then I might as well get a shot in on somebody else as I'm going down. He's already said before that, that we don't naturally expect mistreatment when we do what's right. 
Like, that's obvious. So when we do suffer for doing what is right, how might we be tempted to respond? Well, we're going to be pretty frustrated with that. And we might begin to say, doing right doesn't pay off. I shouldn't be going through this. I shouldn't be treated like this because I didn't do anything wrong. And I might as well give them some of the same treatment. We default to thinking that you get what you deserve. And when we get something that we feel is unwarranted, we may be tempted to revile in return, as Peter has warned us against. We may be tempted to, 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 to return reviling with reviling rather than entrusting ourselves to Him who judges justly. And Peter here is telling us that life doesn't work like that. Don't approach life like that. Re- correct your thinking that it's better to suffer for doing good. And the reason is because it identifies you with Jesus. It aligns you with Christ. Wasn't it Jesus who told His disciples in John 15, if the world hates you, remember, they hated me first. And this is why Peter will say in the next chapter to the same audience, he says, when you are insulted because you follow Jesus, you are blessed. This means that the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And so Peter, over and over throughout this letter, is reminding the reader and us that those who know that they belong to another world can endure being outcasts in this one. So we have to correct our thinking on this. And then we're going to move on to the fourth point that I believe wraps up this whole passage here at the end of chapter 3. In verses 18 to 22, Peter calls us to remember our vindication. And as we arrive at this final part of the passage, as we wade into these verses, I just want to say at the outset that we need to recognize that that these verses are, are notoriously some of the most challenging verses to interpret in all of the New Testament. These verses have perplexed Bible students and scholars for a long time. But have no fear. After studying this week, I have settled the matter. I have it all figured out, and I'm going to give you all the right answers. Being somewhat facetious here, but what I am going to do is do my best to give a brief sketch of the challenges that are faced in this passage and offer what I believe is a reasonable understanding of this section. And actually, as I have done this, as I I have first approached this passage with somewhat fear and trepidation and uncertainty, this has been a rich feast for my soul this week to reflect on what I believe Peter is setting forth here, and I pray can be encouraging for you as well. And we could spend a whole hour just unpacking these verses and and, kind of working through all the different options and issues So I recognize the limitations of what we can do here, but let's take a minute and jump into it. First off, we have to ask, how does this section function in the passage? How does it function in the passage? Regardless of the of the specifics of the passage within each verse, collectively they they function to serve the overall purpose, the overall theme of everything that Peter is trying to set forth, his, his overarching argument. And actually getting at that meaning is is what's most important here. And so I believe that these verses serve to give us examples that embody and symbols that remind us of the truths that are already set forth. So he's giving us examples and symbols that remind us of these truths that he's already set forth. And so how does he do this? And the first statement that he makes is, is fairly straightforward. He says we follow the example of Christ. He said this before in chapter 2. He begins with, for also or because also. We're called to embrace suffering for doing good because Christ also suffered in the same way. We follow Christ in suffering, but unlike our suffering, the suffering of Jesus 
And the path that he went on was effective in bringing us into a relationship with God. Here, Peter sets forth the heart of the gospel. So we, we have to listen to this. These are verses you should memorize, hide in your heart. When he says this, that Jesus suffered once for sins. He describes a completed action. He's not saying for all sins and sin, in some sense of universalism as if all will be saved, but he died once and for all. There is no other sacrifice that is needed. There is nothing else that needs to be done. No other suffering is salvific. He also says that he died once, the righteous for the unrighteous. Peter explicitly here defines Jesus' death on the cross as substitutionary atonement. Two big words, but basically it means he died in our place to pay for our sins. For all that Jesus' death is set forth, even in this, this passage for us as an example to follow, it is not merely an example, but it is something that actually accomplishes our redemption because He died the righteous one for the unrighteous one. Christ died as our substitute in our place, bearing the punishment that we rightly deserve so that we could be brought back to God. This is the good news that we have been offered, which is continually set forth from, from this pulpit week in and week out, that I invite you to believe that we who were far off from God because of the sin that stood against us, there was also one that stood in our place bearing God's just wrath so that we could receive His perfect righteousness and therefore be reconciled and enter back into a relationship with our Creator. This is the Gospel. And without the atoning work of Christ, the One who died in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous, it could not have been done. And what a beautiful statement of what God has done for us. And this is what Peter sets forth to encourage us to endure difficulty. So Peter's point is that because Christ suffered, we should expect to suffer. But it is Christ's suffering that actually vindicates our suffering because of what he says next. He says he was put to death in the flesh, meaning he fully died. His body actually died. This wasn't some magical, you know, deception. But Jesus actually died. But it says He was made alive in the Spirit, meaning the, in the domain of the spiritual realm. And this, at this point, is where things can be a little difficult and get a little challenging. And all week long as I read this, I kept thinking, Peter, you could have finished and cut things off right here. It would have been a great climactic finish to your passage. But no, Peter goes on and he says this. He says that in which, referring back to this realm of the Spirit, Jesus in the spiritual realm went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And He did that because they formerly did not obey what God's, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. So He introduces Noah out of the blue here. While the ark was being prepared, in which eight persons were brought safely through water. And if that wasn't an odd connection enough, Peter goes on and says, baptism actually corresponds to this and now saves you. So we're confronted with a few questions as we enter into this. Questions like, who are the spirits in prison? What did Jesus actually proclaim to them? What is the relationship between Noah and the flood and baptism? And how on earth does baptism save us? So I'm going to kind of walk through just a few options here. There's, there's about six options for this idea of who the spirits in prison are. And I'm just going to present a few and, and, and explain one that I, that I, that I, I kind of think is, is driving what Peter's getting at here. We don't have time to go into all of this. If anybody would love to get into the weeds of this, I would love to have a conversation with you at a later time. But I want to get at the heart of why Peter introduces this here. 
So who are the spirits in prison and what did Jesus proclaim? One option that's been set forth is that these are rebellious humans from the time of Noah who died in the judgment of the flood and are now in the intermediate state or Hades, you could say. Another option, sort of similar to that, but a little different spin, is that that these are the humans who were alive in Noah's day and that Jesus proclaimed to them repentance through Noah by the Spirit. So what this view is setting forth is that this is not a not a post-crucifixion activity of Jesus, but this is something that, that the Spirit of Christ did through the life of Noah in Noah's day to the people, the unrighteous people that were around Noah. There's a lot of good reasons why this, this argument has been set forth, and I, I think it's, it's plausible, but it's not what I really believe Peter's setting forth. Third view that I think is, is possible and I actually think is likely is that what Peter is referring to is a realm of fallen angels who are currently held in spiritual prison awaiting final judgment. This one may be a little harder to, to get our head around and to kind of receive, but I believe that what Jesus is doing is this. What he declares to them is not the gospel, whoever he's declaring. I, I, the, 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 the main word that he uses here, that Peter uses, is not the word that's normally used to mean proclaim the gospel. It's just a general proclamation. It can be used to refer to the gospel, but in many ways it's just a, a, a proclamation of sorts. So what did Jesus declare? I believe that Jesus went and proclaimed over the fallen angelic realm, signifying all the evil forces. And Jesus declares to them his victory over the devil and all evil that stands in rebellion against God. Peter is drawing in this cosmic warfare theme into this passage. One of the verses that really uh, supports this view is what Peter later on says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 where he says, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And I believe that that Peter is referencing the same event, the same thing in both of these passages here. We also know from a, from a, a passage such as Colossians chapter 2, that there is this victory of God that is declared upon Jesus' death. At the end of Colossians 2, it says that he disarmed the rulers and authorities, which many believe is a reference to these angelic, fallen spiritual beings. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, meaning in Christ. So those are a couple of reasons why I believe this is why he introduces this. But how does it relate? How does it relate? He goes on and he calls us then to remember the path of Noah. Peter connects this proclamation of victory and defeat of evil to the preservation of Noah through the flood. And these spirits were likely those who it appears from Genesis chapter 6, just before the story of the flood. In Genesis 6, these, these spiritual beings led humanity into this gross rebellion against God that ultimately brings on God's judgment of the world in the flood in Genesis chapter 6. And so here Noah is offered to us as an example of faithfulness amidst a hostile, unbelieving world. And also as judgment fell on them, God then preserved and He saved Noah and his family through the waters of the flood. So in one sense, we look back to Noah and the flood as an example of faithfulness amidst unrighteousness, which is relevant to Peter's audience and even to us of, of, of faithfulness, even, even though everyone around you doesn't believe, everyone around you doesn't, doesn't follow Jesus. He's saying, remain faithful. Noah was faithful and God brought him through it. And at the same time, Christ has declared final vindication for Noah in his proclamation to those spirits who are now in prison. Then Peter continues to complicate the matter as he then draws this connection with baptism. 
But he continues to apply the same principle, the same theme to us as he calls us to find hope in our baptism. The text says that baptism corresponds to this. Namely, referring back to being brought safely through the flood. So he's saying baptism corresponds to the flood. And what Peter is doing here is something that we see throughout Scripture. He's drawing out what is called typology. Meaning that a person, a place, or an event that happened historically in the past is meant to be a prophetic pointer to a greater reality that is to come. The type points forward to the antitype. The flood is a type of baptism. And as Noah was saved through the flood, so Peter says baptism saves us. So is he saying that the physical act of baptism is the effective means of bringing regeneration to our hearts? Or is baptism necessary for salvation? Is that what he's saying? And I would say no. He is not saying that. Part of our problem is that that we have in some ways disconnected baptism from conversion where in the New Testament they are they are really held pretty tightly together. And so what I believe Peter is doing is that he's using a, a literary de- device. The technical term is, is, is known as metonymy here in, in this, in which he's, he's taking an aspect of something and, and he's, he's, it's using that to stand to symbolize the whole reality. So to illustrate this, we do this all the time with things. Think even now of COVID-19. Technically, what is COVID-19? I believe it's actually the disease that you get when you're infected with this virus that causes this respiratory disease, right? But many of us will walk around and we will say to a friend over a nice Zoom call, we'll say, hey, how are you getting through COVID-19? Even when that other person may not actually be infected with the virus. But in this time, COVID-19 has come to stand for this, this whole epidemic and everything that's bound up with it. And we refer to it as COVID-19. Similarly, I believe Peter is taking baptism as this concrete sign and symbol and and using it to describe this entire act of conversion. And it stands in the place in this way. And to see this, to support this, we have to look at how he qualifies his statement that baptism saves. He says that it's not as a removal of dirt from the body. It's not the physical act that it actually functions to remove dirt and somehow cleanse our soul from sin. But rather, he goes on to say that it is what the act of baptism represents that he's pointing to. What baptism stands for is what saves us. The ESV in many translations will will translate this next thing as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Baptism saves in that it is an appeal to God for a good conscience meaning that it's, it's this statement of asking God for kind of a new heart and a, and, and a cleansing of our heart. And, and that's, that's a possible translation. But it's actually a tough phrase to translate. And I think it's likely a complicated Greek way of saying that this is a, a pledge of loyalty to God. The baptism functions in its saving way as it is a pledge of allegiance and loyalty to God. Baptism is a formal, public announcement that you belong to God. And what is the basis of this declaration, he says? He says, not because you got your head wet, but on on the basis of and through the resurrection of Jesus. So insofar as baptism accurately symbolizes the act of one declaring loyalty to God, by belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus on that basis, then baptism can be said to to be that which saves through the resurrection that we are declaring our hope in. Because the reality is that it is only on the basis of the resurrection of Jesus that any of us can stand up and declare that I am not under God's wrath but I have been buried with him in baptism. And as we enter the waters of judgment that symbolize death, we are then raised out by the power of the Spirit to a new life 
and we then stand on God's side having escaped the domain of sin, of evil rebellion that's characterized by those fallen angels who took their stand against Yahweh, the one and only ruler of all. And Jesus has declared once and for all that victory over them is final. And it is this Jesus that Peter says as he concludes this passage Jesus has not stayed there, but he has gone into heaven. He is at the Father's right hand. And what has happened? Angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to him. I believe that Peter reminds us of these strange biblical connections to declare to us that our final vindication is certain. Jesus has declared to the evil realm that God has won. And every time another believer enters the waters of baptism, I believe as one writer says, it is another reiteration of their doom in the wake of the gospel in the kingdom of God. So in this, there's also an invitation to receive baptism if you haven't been baptized Enter the waters, not not because it it saves you, but because it is a bold declaration that you are on God's side. That that you you are rooted and born out of the resurrection of Jesus. You are united with Him. And it declares to everyone out there, especially all evil that opposes God, that God is the victor. When World War II started way back in 1939, the United States originally tried to stay neutral. They really didn't want to get involved in the war. Many people didn't want the United States to get involved. Hope that that, after World War I and all the, all the destruction, hopefully, you know, we, we could stay out of this one. And, you know, there were many indicators that pointed that in all reality, it was not if, but only when the United States would would go in. But actually, there were a lot of people who, who hoped that the U.S. could stay out of this one. That they could sit on the sidelines and things would just kind of work itself out across the pond. But that became evidently, what became evidently clear in 1941 with the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. It was shown that the United States could not hold that position. They could not stay neutral. They had to join a side. And there is no neutrality in the cosmic war that we find ourselves in. And baptism saves in that it is an an acted prayer to God of our faith in Him based on the death and resurrection of Jesus. Baptism is a sign that has been given to us that dramatizes the decision of faith to us individually, to all of us as a people of God and as a declaration of God's victory over the evil realm. And just as in World War II, D-Day effectively won the war. It's the day we look back to say everything shifted. The war was effectively won. We knew it was going to go that way. It was not until almost a year later that VE Day happened when things were finally realized. So for us, God's victory has been announced. Jesus has proclaimed the defeat of sin, death, and hell, and yet we await the full realization of that victory as we, even now, may face opposition for the name of Jesus. And I believe this is the Massive point that Peter is trying to make. And so in this whole passage, there's just this this strong reminder and challenge for us to take these words to heart. To adjust our expectations. We may do everything right and we may still suffer. We need to prepare to respond rightly to mistreatment with, with gentleness and respect. We need to correct our thinking 
realize that the suffering declares us united with Jesus. And let us remember our vindication. The victory has been won. Jesus' death and His resurrection has declared to everyone that opposes God that in the end, only the name of Yahweh will be worshipped and He will have the last word. So let us go forth this week as maybe there's, there's, there's a hint and a glimpse of, of maybe things opening up a little bit, may start to engage with people a little bit more in life and in different places. Let us live a life that's worth asking about. Let us be ready to declare the hope that we have in Jesus. And when people reject us, when people maybe insult us, when that offensive post is out there on Facebook, remember what Christ has done, what He has declared. Remember your own baptism when you entered those waters and were brought out, symbolizing the new life that has been given to you. Look back to that as a declaration of God's final vindication of Himself and of His people. Let's pray to the God who justifies His own name. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this passage. I know there's so much in here that, that, that we can wrestle with and struggle with. But as I have sought to be faithful to Your Word, I pray that You would, you would help us to see these truths. Help us to apply them in our lives. To find our hope in You alone, the One who has declared our vindication and our, Your victory over all evil. Let us align with You, be changed and renewed day by day to be like our Savior. Let us face opposition with humility, with gentleness and respect of others. And may You use Your people this week to declare the glorious Gospel and the hope that we have in Jesus. And it's in Your beautiful and glorious name that we pray. Amen.